After 25 years in the fashion industry, I've realized that fashion is not really about the clothes, it's about the people. I'm Laura Van Root Poole, and this is What We Wore. Nellie Kim is a skilled buyer at the highest level of the fashion industry who recently launched her shoe collection, Reedon. Reedon was born out of her life experience from her journey as a shoe buyer, a life-changing trip to India, and surviving ovarian cancer. Nellie Kim, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. You are not only a friend, but also an incredible creative that's been in the industry with me for almost 20 years. Yeah? Yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? I think so. <laughs> we both started in the late 90s. <laughs> Will you talk about where you're from? I know you're from Hawaii. Yes, I grew up in Hawaii. I was born and raised there, which is such a special place to grow up. You know, forever more, I have this really internal sense of Hawaii that just sort of lives inside of me and I just bring it with me wherever I go. So I do really feel so blessed to have been able to grow up there. And it's this place that's just full of natural beauty. So it's really, even if you had nothing, you could go swim at amazing beaches, you could go hike and see waterfalls. And uh, it's just one of those places that's really, really special. And because of that, I feel like I had all this space to dream because I was so removed from the world. And to this day, my friends still tease me like, oh, you have like unicorn butterfly rainbow lenses on. <laughs> you just see the world. It's such a happy place. I'm like, I guess I do. I mean, when you grow up that way, you just sort of have that imprinted in you, you know? I think you do. You 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 do admit that you always have had that in you. How did your parents um, end up in Hawaii? Yeah, that's a fun story. Well, they both ended up there separately and met there. My mother's in-laws were diplomats. So she came through her sister who was married to a diplomatic family. So she was able to come in through the family migration. And then my father actually worked for Sony for a Japanese company and he was working in Japan. And then they had always had a Sony Hawaii office mm. and he would, he basically transferred to Hawaii and to America through work. You grew up in the city, I guess. I mean, what is it like? Oh, I mean, is it a really city? I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like one big suburb. If I it, is. it reminds me, like, there's parts of it that LA reminds me of, but general life, it's just like one. Even the downtown city isn't very city-like. The scale is much smaller. Everything takes about 15 minutes to get from point A to point B, <laughs> and <laughs> everything's very centralized for that matter. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really special. You know, you kind of forget. You get desensitized as you live there. You're like, oh, the, sun, the sky is sunny and blue every single day. That's not normal. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask. How did you, I mean, I'm sure everybody asks you all the time, like, why did you leave? <laughs> did you always want to be somewhere else? You know, it's so funny. Like, like I said, you just become desensitized to things. So I didn't, I didn't know what I had till I left. So when I graduated high school, my goal in life was to just leave and do the opposite of Hawaii. <laughs> I wanted to see the world. I wanted to move to the East Coast, go to something really traditional, you know, the opposite of Hawaii. And a lot of my friends and classmates that I knew ended up going to school on the West Coast. And to me, that just felt like high school part two. Right. So I wasn't really into that. <laughs> I wanted the opposite of that. And that is exactly what I got because I ended up going to school in West Philadelphia mm. and it's extremely urban. <laughs> Never <laughs> even seen snow before I got there. <laughs> oh my God. How did you shop to to move there? Were you, were you nervous or were you like, 
I mean, how did you prepare? <laughs> oh my God. I didn't. You know, sometimes ignorance is total bliss. I just <laughs> got there. I showed up, hadn't even visited the school before. My aunt lived in, lives in Maryland. So she was able to sort of take me around and help me settle in. But it took me a long time to figure out how to dress for cold weather. <laughs> Because I always just assume you wear big bulky things and you'll be warm, but that's not even true. No, it's not true. <laughs> well, that's the layering. <laughs> I mean, it was it was a rude awakening. <laughs> yeah, it was a time of of sartorial ex- experimentation. <laughs> and did your parents um, were they supportive? Did they want you to to go far away? Yeah, I mean, they just wanted me to go to the best school that I could go to, basically, you know, it's a typical immigrant family story. Yeah. Go to the best school you can. <laughs> so they were happy. They were they were fine with whatever. And what did you go specifically for? Were you already interested in fashion? I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I feel like, you know, I have so much admiration for people who start college and they know exactly when, what they want to do with their life. I was not one of those people. <laughs> I ended up majoring in English literature, but... You know, I had no idea. There was a part when I first started where I thought, oh, maybe I should try pre-med, which is a delusional thought because I was always <laughs> terrible at science. But you just have these narratives running yeah. in your head like, oh, maybe she's a doctor or a lawyer or business or whatever. And I went to Penn, which Wharton is a part of. So there are just so many business-minded people there that mm-hmm. were so intense type A. And I just sort of found myself like retracting from that and wanted to just be in the English department and read beautiful things (laughs) yeah and when did fashion become a part of it well in high school one of my friends her aunt was a buyer at the local department store so to me I was like oh that's a job that's so interesting (laughs) and every time she would go on buying trips she'd come back and bring something cool for my friend so I sort of stored that little piece of knowledge away and I loved experimenting with fashion in high school I had like all of my phases my little surfer girl puka shell necklace super tan sun in bleached hair (laughs) phase. (laughs) I would like raid my dad's closet (laughs) and do that phase. And then I had my whole like clueless, you know, (laughs) raver girl. Like (laughs) it was just so fun to really experiment. And I've sort of developed this um what would I call it? I would just say that I I felt really proud of my ability to go into any store and just pick out something fun. Yeah. And to this day, I'm still very good at finding the most expensive thing <laughs> in the store without even seeing a price tag. You did do that. I mean, what, was that your first job out of college? It was. And you know what's really funny? Because you just interviewed Elizabeth Vandergoltz, yeah. and she was actually my first boss. Oh, my gosh. She hired me. Was that at Bendel's? That was at Henry Bendel. Yeah, exactly. So that was in 1999. It was a different time. It was sort of the beginning or the the midst of the dot-com bubble. And so everything was always an upward trajectory. There was nothing, nothing bad had happened really. Um, I would say governmentally while I was in my adulthood. So at the time, my first week at work that Friday, we had a book signing party for Sting and I met Sting. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this job is amazing. (laughs) Talk to me about Elizabeth as a boss. What was she like? Oh, she was so fun. Yeah, we talked a lot about women's leadership and and having that first great mentor. And I'm, I know she was one for you. Yeah, for sure. She was just so she was like a whirling dervish of energy, and she sort of got everything done so quickly. And I was just sort of wide eyed. I never even actually opened Excel before, so I just sort <laughs> of watched and absorb. So I, I, you know, I think there's so much you can learn just by just sitting next to a person and watching how they interact, how she was on the phone with vendors, 
how she answered emails. I'd be copied on things and I would see, you know, just how she communicated and how she went through buying appointments. That was back in the day when you'd actually take pictures of film cameras. (laughs) So I'd have to go and run to the one hour photo, get them developed. It's so funny. But it's funny you mentioned that about the communication part, because I think that I think I've talked before about we we really built out our internship program. And a lot of it was because we had young women come to us. And I mean, you know, not that they should have known, but women 16, 17 years old that had no idea how to write a proper email, had no idea how to answer the phone and things like that. And I mean, what a gift to have somebody train you in that next right next to you. And I'm sure you still do it that way. I mean, that's how you've worked your entire life. How lucky that that first boss was Elizabeth, really. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we actually only worked together for probably not even six months before she was recruited to go to Bergdorf Goodman. Mm -hmm. And so after she left, and actually we have a funny connection, a Hawaii connection, because her relatives live in Hawaii. And we discovered during my job interview that I actually knew them. I was her nephew's camp counselor. <laughs> he was best friends. He was really good friends with my sister. It was just like a really funny small world coincidence where you just know, okay, this is meant to be. Yeah. After she left Bergdorf's is when we actually became friends. Mm-hmm. So we didn't work together for that long, but it was like a really great first boss. And I still feel really lucky because, you know, you some sometimes you meet people in your life that sort of change the trajectory of your life. And she's been one of those people for me. For me as well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> my, mine's, mine was at 15, but 16, but yeah, same for me for sure. And so how long, Nellie, were you at Bendel's? I ended up being there for, for, let's say, two to three years. So I was there and I had a series of bosses that were great. It, you know, what's so great about it is like one of my next bosses actually had never been a buyer. So I was finding myself in the position of sort of teaching her some things, which is wow. crazy because I was literally like... <laughs> barely out of school. But what was cool about it is that that because she was so new, she actually got me to travel with her. So I got to go to Europe as a little 23, four-year-old, which is insane to think about now. And so I was there, 9-11 had happened. And after that, I think a lot of people in New York took stock of, wait, am I happy right now? Like, is this even what I want to do? And that was the case for me. I think I was still in the back of my mind thinking, huh, do I even respect? I don't think I respected fashion as a career at that time because I had this narrative in my head that it wasn't a real job. Right. So I thought, okay, maybe I need to go back to Hawaii. Let's just reset and I'll just move back and sort of explore new things. I refer to that as my quarter life crisis, but in a good way. (laughs) And you moved back and what did you do? I did. I tried every job I was remotely interested in. I was like a marketing manager at a yoga studio, I thought, should I go to law school? So I became a paralegal. I, you know, I enrolled in business school. I even did a management consulting internship. I literally did everything. And and through it all, I just started to realize about myself, okay, I'm capable of doing these things as so many people are, but none of them feel like me. And it's not even a full expression of what I'm capable of bringing to the world either. Yeah. And I had no passion for any of these things either. And um, I realized all during that time, all I did was just sort of absorb and devour every fashion magazine. (laughs) This was back in the day when I would read them cover to cover. I would go on style.com, see every single show. And I just made this mental note. Okay, I think I need to just figure out a way to work in fashion and get paid for it. And the rest will work itself out. And the whole time, you know, it's just one of those full circle moments. My parents never disrespected fashion. They just want me to be happy. And I think that's the case with most parents. They just want you to be happy and safe. So they were supportive. I mean, when you were living at home, you were living at home when you came back, were they like, 
oh yeah what are you doing I couldn't have felt like the biggest <laughs> loser <laughs> back in my high school bedroom <laughs> yeah. like what am I even doing with my life but you know in hindsight I'm really glad I did that because if I hadn't tried all of those things I would always have wondered what if yeah and what was Hawaii like when you were back was it clear that you couldn't live there for for the time being it was really beautiful. I actually got super into fitness. I started doing like triathlons and marathons too, because that's just sort of that lifestyle there. Yeah. But there was a part of me that just wasn't stimulated. And I don't know that it, maybe it was creative stimulation. I mm -hmm. feel like that part was missing for me a little bit. And there's something about being in fashion amongst your tribe of people where you're all kind of like on the same wavelength, even if you come from different places. And there was just a little bit of me that I don't think was ever really seen or understood there. So I was like, okay, to find myself or to be myself, it's weird that I have to be myself at a job, but it, it kind of was true. <laughs> no, it totally makes sense. I, I feel that. And you were recruited by Bergdorf to come back? Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Again, this is like the way <laughs> destiny and um, I don't even know what to call it, but kismet works in my life or my calling. I don't know. <laughs> I had made that mental shift in my head. Okay, I need to just work in fashion and figure out a way to get paid for it. At the time, I was paralegaling at a law firm. And like around that time, Elizabeth was at Bergdorf's again, and she had just been promoted to vice president divisional. And she sent out this email to all of her friends. It was just like, hey, I just, by the way, she never does this, but she did like, hey, just wanted to let you know I just got this job promotion I'm like really excited and I immediately wrote back I'm like oh my god I am so proud of you that is amazing you <laughs> deserve this this is incredible she had had her quarter life crisis because she'd been in LA exactly right and exactly and oh believe me we hung out in LA too <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's so interesting though okay and so so and she said by the way yes <laughs> Yeah. So she sends that mass email out to her friends, which again, like to this day, I don't think she's ever done that again. Yeah, so I was like, I feel like I remember that she did that. Yeah. Right. Don't you remember? Yeah, and do. so I wrote back and I was like, I'm so proud of you. And then she wrote back within 10 minutes. Hey, would you ever consider moving back to New York and being a buyer again? I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> so it's funny how like I thought, had the thought and then within, you know, not even very long that happened. And so I mean, it's all like it happened overnight, but, you know, we basically remained in dialogue. I had happened to be in New York that summer, so I was able to meet her boss, Ginny Hershey Lambert, mm -hmm. who also became a mentor for me. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of that year, 2005, I would, they offered me a role there. So I felt really, really grateful to go back. And what's funny is one of the other GMM senior vice presidents there was my old boss at Henry Bendel. So things just sort of go <laughs> in full circle. You were hired for accessories for sh shoes? Actually, I was a ready-to-wear buyer. Oh, you so were. that was uh, always been my first love. I came back to be the Paris buyer. It was like really that's a, a dream good, job. That's a good was, gig, yeah. my, it was amazing. My vendor complex was Chanel, Valentino, Dior, Lanvin, Acris. At one point, Carolina Herrera. Who else did I have? Andrew Ginn, who was a friend of our <laughs> mutual friend of ours. Just like a really special complex at the time travel was a lot simpler it wasn't as complicated as it is now so mm -hmm. we could have buyers that were just paris buyer a milan buyer and an american buyer so yeah. i was the paris buyer that's a, a good gig oh my god it was amazing <laughs> and plus i was working with elizabeth again which i was like <laughs> i wasn't really sure how that was going to be since we were so close at that point but it ended up being great actually yeah because i knew like we had mutual respect for each other i didn't try and like 
take advantage of the situation. Just, you know, there to do my best. Yeah. And then when did you move to accessories? Yeah. So I was there for four years and was really very happy, very content and really never thought I would leave ready to wear. And then Ginny Lambert, Hershey Lambert had come to me and said, Hey, listen, there's this big handbag buying job open, open because the buyer just left. And would you consider taking it over? And at first I was like, no, sorry. <laughs> I'm like working with my best friend. This is so fun. We go, we basically yeah. go on travels six times a year. And exactly. All the work is super fun. Like, why would I leave? And then I thought about it a little bit more and I sort of like my, okay, my like practical side came in. I was like, well, if I really want to understand luxury business, handbags and accessories are pretty much the revenue profit driver for every major luxury brand. Mm -hmm. And I should understand that and think it would be interesting. I have a very similar vendor matrix. I'd be buying Chanel still. And I thought, okay, I know it's going to be a lot of work and it's going to be a big learning curve, but it's going to be good for me to do this. And so I decided to take the role. Accessories is such a different part of your brain, I think. Were you an accessories person? I wasn't really an accessories person, but I could, it started, started to feel like, um, like a puzzle, you know, a challenge to figure out the business models. So that was what was fun about it. And, you know, in ready to wear and even footwear to a certain extent, whatever walks down the runway is what is the most important thing. Right. And handbags, oftentimes the very best bags never walk a runway. And it really is irrelevant what walked down the runway. You can still have a very strong, successful handbag business if you know how to run it. Right. And, and it's one of those things where you like the smallest nuances are a big deal to a true handbag collector. So I still remember my first market as a Chanel handbag buyer, like, you know, the timeless classic, the, the classic quilted flat bag. Mm -hmm. They came out with black with a ruthenium hardware, right? Which I didn't know, but had never really been offered ever in life. And it was like the best bag to buy. And I was like, oh, do we even need that? We have so many black bags. Why do we need that one? <laughs> And everybody's like, oh my so God. So I skipped no. it. Oh, really? Yeah. They're like, what do you mean you didn't buy that? I was like, well, I don't know. Aren't they all the same? So then I started to realize, okay, wait, I have to actually do some of this analytical uh, sort of pay attention to the analytics. Okay. How does hard gold hardware sell versus silver hardware? What about caviar versus lambskin? And um, the sizes really matter. All of that matters. And it's it's a really fun puzzle, actually, once you can figure it out. And the thing with handbags, too, is even if they show you a collection, a certain brands, you could do this with not every brand, but certain brands you could go in and you're like, okay, I mean, the newness is okay, but you know what? It's not that great. And I actually want to bring in these other bags that are recuts from two years ago, but I know will sell because it's this time of year and mm -hmm. it's a good gifting item, whatever. You can just sort of make things up. So I felt there was a lot of creativity in that as well. Oh, that's interesting. And so then when did you move into shoes, Nelly? Okay. Yeah. So I was in handbags for two years, which is a really fun kind of compressed amount of time because during that time period, that was also when Phoebe started at Celine. Mm -hmm. So we grew that business from like zero to $10 million almost overnight. So it was super Amazing. fun. Literally like riding, like surfing on a wave. <laughs> I would say I'd been there for two years and I thought to myself, okay, someday I'll go back to ready to wear. And you know, whenever there's an opportunity to be promoted, I really wanted to become a divisional it was my dream and I wanted to run my own division. And I just kept waiting for all these ready to wear roles to become open. And I would keep kind of coming forward for them. But every time they would be like, no, not for you. And I'm like, huh, interesting. So I was just like, all right, whatever. I, I'm learning a lot in handbags. I'll just keep doing my thing. 
And then around that time, the shoe divisional, there were like a series of two of them that left in a row. And so this role was open and vacant. I never actually thought about footwear. And it wasn't until someone came up to me, I think one of the planners or mm-hmm. was like, hey, aren't you going to go for that shoe job? I'm like, I don't know. What? I don't know. Really? I didn't think about it. So it's funny. So I, I then thought about it. I was like, hey, actually, that'd be kind of fun. Maybe I should think about that. I was starting to get a little bit like tired of all of the travel mm-hmm. in handbags. At the time, I think I, I was like responsible for 60 or 70% of the volume. And it's so much of the travel was in my complex. Yeah. And I was getting a little tired and weary of that. Uh, we traveled like 10, 12 times a year. I was like, okay, this is too much. Mm-hmm. So I thought, huh, well, shoes could be fun. And it's actually like the perfect amalgamation of the fashion seasonal portion of ready to wear with the business model core continuative of handbags. Mm-hmm. So I, I, asked if I could be considered for the role and it was an immediate yes so I was like oh interesting so that was so smooth and so I I started and I went into handbags and that was back in what year was that 2012 and was it natural from the beginning was it easy I mean it was a big learning curve because I like handbags shoes are pretty technical as well but I actually feel really grateful because Around the time I was promoted, Josh Schulman had started mm-hmm. at Bergdorf's, who mm-hmm. had just come from becoming president of Jimmy Choo Shoes. And then Tracy Margulies started as my mm-hmm. GMM, and she has always been a total shoe expert. So <laughs> I was learning from literally the two most amazing experts in town, and I feel really grateful for that. And there was a lot that I felt was so transferable from all of the other categories, and most importantly, having been at Bergdorf's at that point for you know six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. I felt like I really understood the Bergdorf's customer, which you really and ready to understand the customer. Mm. And what gaps in the market did you see from a buying perspective with shoes? Well, when I first started, that was like platform central mania. That's <laughs> when everyone was doing platforms and it was starting to go straight to single sole. Mm. And people were starting to get into the whole mid heel, you know, block mid heel shoe where the, you look great, but it's not. You're not like teetering on these stilettos. So that was actually really an interesting time because we were basically transitioning the whole floor from all of these platform shoes. If one day, then that's how New York is, <laughs> and especially Bergdorf's, one day just platforms stopped selling completely. Right. So we had all this inventory and we're like, okay, well, we, now we need to transition to single sole. Like people are over the platform. <laughs> so funny. And they were still, and we would hear, we'd be like, Neiman Marcus is still totally selling platforms. I'm like, yeah, I know, because it takes some time for the rest of the country to catch up. Right. I don't know what to right. tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and that does happen. We're ahead of our time. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I guess our, our customer is more fickle. But it was it was really fun because I could then go to the sales associates. And what's funny about shoe world, they have this phrase like shoe dog. And it's true because people, once they start in shoes, they never leave. No, they so don't. All those sellers. Yeah, they'd been there. They were like 50 shoe sellers and they'd all been there for decades. And so I felt like I could learn so much from them. We'd be on the floor practically every day. So we would talk to them a lot about what they're missing. Mm-hmm. And that's where I could use some of those learnings I had from previous roles. And basically, like, for example, there was some shoe that they discontinued at Christian Louboutin, which is a black mid-heel. No one else was offering it. So I went to Manolo and said, hey, guys, can you make us this shoe? And they we kind of Frankensteined it together and it ended up becoming one of our best sellers. And yeah. we saw it end up at their Manolo Blahnik boutique. And we're like, hey, I thought that was our shoe. <laughs> <laughs> but a good shoe is a good shoe. When did your mind start to drift towards your own your own thing? 
Right. So I am an accidental entrepreneur. I don't <laughs> never thought to myself, I really want to be an entrepreneur. But what had happened was I've been at, in the shoe world, let's see, though, three years at that point. And around that time, I'd actually gone through a, um, a, like a sad divorce. So I was trying to figure out what I how to heal from it all, how to process it all. And mm -hmm. I was just sick of thinking of myself. So I actually signed up for a volunteer uh, missions trip to go to India, working with women and children who'd been rescued from trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so on that trip, which was life-changing for sure, I just felt so inspired by the women I met there. More importantly, when I met them, I realized actually we're exactly the same. There's nothing really separating us aside from the fact that we were born into different families and different countries. So I left that trip thinking, okay, my gift is not to be a social worker or a doctor, <laughs> but what if I could use what I know how to do in service of a greater good? I don't know what that means, but I just had that thought. Mm -hmm. So I got back to Bergdorf's and I, when I, as soon as I got back to New York, I was like, that was crazy town. Like, I think I was just carried away by the moment. I don't need to worry about that. And I went back to work and I was like, okay, it just lost some of its luster. I don't know. I mean, the shoes yeah. are still beautiful. Bergdorf's is still the same, but somehow it didn't feel like this was my path anymore. At that point, didn't know what I was supposed to be doing next, but I figured I'll just remain open to whatever possibilities come my way. And um, at that time, Anthropology reached out and they were looking for a divisional of shoes and bags. And I remember meeting the, my, who would, the man who had become my supervisor. The first thing he said to me when I got there to the interview was, oh, you'll have to excuse me. I'm really out of it. We just came back from India and I'm just super jet lagged. And I was, as soon as he said that, he said, India, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to work here. <laughs> I don't even care what you say. I work here. Because they were doing fine. production there. They had, yes, they had factory partners in India, wow. along with many other places in the world. So, and it actually made a lot of sense because if I was going to start my own business, I really needed to understand yeah. how people in America dress, not just the half of the 1%. Right. What do people in the rest of the world wear? And even Anthro is a little more elevated than, yeah. I wouldn't call that like average Joe America or average Jane America. Yeah. But they, do had 200, they had 200 stores and their average unit retail of a shoe is like under $100 versus one store, $850 right. average unit retail at Bergdorf's. And what were your learnings there? What did you learn? Like what, what does America like differently from what Bergdorf likes? Comfort? I would say this. Well, okay. Anthro is probably not a great indicator of what America likes because it is definitely a more mm. kind of romantic customer who has a very specific energy about her mm -hmm. but it was a really cool environment to work in because it's a vertical retailer so we I started to work with people we had a, we had our own design, handbag designer and a mm -hmm. PD person on our team um, as well as buyers so we would basically make some of our own product and also buy it from the market so it was a combination of the two mm -hmm. um, so I think I what I learned from that experience was a lot about this hyper focus on the customer and they didn't really, they're not like a typical shoe floor where you go in and you can find, you know, a black shoe, a brown shoe, whatever you mm -hmm. want. It was the type of place where you'd go for a yellow velvet booty. Right. Something that you had to fall in love specific, with. Yeah. Yeah. Like a specific random item. And that would be what would sell whatever was in the catalog would sell whatever they messaged on would sell. So it was very different mindset, but it was a great experience. And actually one of the factories I met there in India is the one that actually now produces my shoes. Oh, wow. They're in Pennsylvania, I think. Are they based? They're in Philly. That was yeah. a very full circle yeah. moment. As you know, I went to school in Philly. Yeah. And so I'm back <laughs> in Philly again. 
and I was commuting back and forth. So I would do kind of the, I had a pied de terre in, in Philly, but mm-hmm. then I also basically would come back to New York every single weekend. And, and traveling to India as well or traveling f- to production as well? We went to India, we went to Brazil, we went to China. And I was only even there less than a year and then we got to go to all those places. Wow. So it was so fun. And did you feel ready for it, Nelly? Did you feel like, did you feel ready for the design part? Because that's never what you had done before, really. I know. Well, it's kind of a running joke at Burgers. We would always laugh. Like, this is something Mr. Bertansky used to say, who was the former CEO of Neiman Marcus. He's like, buyers aren't designers. And we'd be like, <laughs> we beg to differ. <laughs> we, would, yeah. we would make product up all the time because <laughs> Burgers is also like a very specific, special place yeah. where it feels like it, you can kind of run it like a specialty store, but it's huge. So you sort of have some scale. So we we just got to really know our customer just the same way you do because you see them all the time. Yeah. So we would make product up all the time. Like we even Acris till this day they have a seasonal exclusives collection mm-hmm. that comes out twice a year, and we would travel to Switzerland twice a year to to work with Albert and like figure out what we wanted. Yeah, exactly to Sengalen. So I was kind of used to that. And then in that process, in that year that you were in Philly, are you comfortable sharing your diagnosis with um, ovarian cancer? I had been there less than a year, and then I was getting recruited to come back to New York by a shoe company Uh, called Calaris here. uh Uh, So at first, I was kind of resistant because I'm like, I haven't even been in anthro a year. Why would I leave? Like, I haven't learned what I'm supposed to learn. Mm -hmm. But they kept coming back to me, and I, I considered it. And I thought, oh, wait, actually, hmm, this is the brand side I would have obviously responsibility over wholesale, but also uh, oversight over design and production. So really this is managing a brand. I would be GM over three different brands. And this is the best possible way to learn about running my own business someday. So I, I ended up moving in January, 2016 to Calaris back to New York, which was great. And I hadn't been there. I think it was like a solid, I think it was there eight months before I was diagnosed. Yeah. I was there probably... I want to say less than six months. And I started to see this white space in the shoe world because I would look at these sort of macro trends on footwear. Mm-hmm. And like I did this one exercise where I took the top selling shoes in America because we had a sort of an NPD, like they, you could get information that they would aggregate from all these retailers. Mm-hmm. And I just put them on a piece of paper, regardless of the brand or the price point. I just wanted to see what do they even look like? Mm-hmm. And then you look at the page, it's a bunch of black flat shoes. <laughs> and you're like, uh-huh. Duh, of course. People just want really comfortable shoes <laughs> that have a little twist. It's like nothing too crazy or fashiony. Mm-hmm. And all of our best sellers in the brands I worked on, you know, Vince shoes, these few shoes, Dan on Furstenberg, they were all pretty much flat shoes. Mm-hmm. So I sort of thought to myself, huh, maybe I'll, this idea of a business plan started formulating in my head. I was like, I think this could be a really interesting idea to just make a modern, comfortable, comfort shoe brand, but that's cool and like not orthopedic. Right. And not not lame. So I, I'd actually put together this business plan thinking that maybe one day I would pitch it to my company as another brand within their portfolio. Mm. So the the week I finished the business plan, that was the same week I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So I thought, oh, that's so weird. I thought this was my <laughs> this is my calling. And then look at this, I'm getting diagnosed with cancer. I was only 39 at the time. Do you mind telling me about treatment and sort of how long did that take? And did you have to take a leave of absence? And how did you navigate that part? I, so it ended up being stage three C slash four, like the doctors didn't even agree on the staging. So they gave me some crazy statistic, like, okay, you probably have a 30% chance of long-term survival. You know, when you hear crazy numbers like that, you're like, 
okay, that's, that's crazy. I'm not going to think about that again. <laughs> so it was a pretty intense treatment. It was um, surgery, which I know, you mm-hmm. know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And then it was um, seven months of how long? Yeah, it ended up being around six, seven months of chemo. Wow. And no one really tells you this. I, I couldn't work. I mean, some people did, which was amazing. But that was not possible for me. And I when I went back to work, I was still felt like a shell of myself. It, t- it takes about six months just to feel 80% yourself mm-hmm. and then a year to feel like yourself. Yeah. And I didn't realize that. So, you know, I had this thought that every day after chemo, I would feel successively better, but that's actually not how healing works. It's very much, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. If you leap forward another day and then the next week you're in the hospital. So it was a little bit of that for me, but I was just recovering. It took a while, I would say. And it, I, it probably took me a year after chemo to feel like, again, my, like myself. You, you were so supportive of me and, and so incredible, such an incredible resource just to make me feel like things were going to be fine. I know you had that with your friends as well. And did your family come and support you? I mean, because you were in New York being treated, correct? Yeah. No, I was so lucky. I know you can relate to this, but it's that time where in theory, things should be the worst in your life. But then you realize you see all this beauty in the world. You have all of these amazing people, your community rise up to meet you. And I just was in this kind of, I don't know, floating on a cloud. I'd see the nurses and I'd be like, oh my gosh, you're so amazing. Look at you. You devoted your life to healing others. And it's just this moment of intense gratitude and just like love for humanity. So it was both of those things. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard yeah. and that there weren't things about it that were super tough. However, I could also hold both things at the same time. Yeah. And how did your life transform from that experience? So when I went back to work, all of a sudden my shoes, so what people don't tell you this, I don't know if you had this experience, but chemotherapy often results in neuropathy and mm-hmm. feet and hands, which means that you have very sensitive or numb or tingling feet and hands. And for me, that meant that my feet got incredibly sensitive. And when I went back to work, I couldn't actually wear any of my Bergdorf Goodman shoes or my designer shoes. And I could pretty much only wear sneakers and Birkenstocks and Uggs. (laughs) And that was fine. But I also just (laughs) didn't really want to live like that for the rest of my life. So I, you know, I remembered that little business plan I'd thought of and I was like, okay, actually, someone needs to make this brand. And I guess that person's me because (laughs) I actually understand this now. It's not an abstract concept. It's like actually my life. And so how did you get started? And how did you how did you choose the name Reedon? I left Calaris because I realized it wasn't going to be the best fit to do it within that portfolio company. So I went off on my own and it took me about a year just to research and develop the very first shoe, which is our loafer, because I wanted to do research starting with what do foot experts have to say about footwear and feet? Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed a bunch of people. Um, I, used to, I partnered with an orthopedic surgeon from Hospital for Special Surgery. And she just really shared a lot about what her patients currently go through and what they're currently using. So that was where I got this concept of making our own customized insole for each one of our shoes. Mm-hmm. Because that's sort of what people do today. They'll buy like an insole, like a Dr. Scholl's or whatever. And then when they try and put them in their regular shoes, it does not fit. So you basically have to put it in a sneaker. And that's 
again, doesn't really work with all the outfits, as we know. <laughs> That's sort of how we came up with the concept. And then Rita in the name is a made up word, which comes from restoration to Eden. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Yeah, it was kind of like it's the name no one knows how to pronounce, but that's what it <laughs> means. And and it's it's the idea of like, okay, when you wear our shoes, you'll feel like you're in paradise in theory. And then we have this mission to donate 50% of our profits back to charity. Someday when we're profitable, we will do that. <laughs> but I know that, that that to me, I know as a business model can work because when I worked at Calaire's and worked with these licensed brands, mm. Oftentimes a royalty payment was pretty much that 50% of profits. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, as a business model, this is, this is feasible. We just need to get a little more scale and volume and we can make this happen. So that was the idea too, planting seeds into future generations through our charitable donations. And then tell me about working through Kickstarter to, to start your seed funding. What was that like? And how did you even know how to do that? Oh my gosh. Everything <laughs> was trial by, like, you just learn on the job, I guess, you know, I had always had this idea of of launching on Kickstarter because I love the idea of crowdfunding. Of course, most people, when I told them I was starting my own business, every single one of them were like, you need to get investors before you even start. You need to get funded. I was like, mm, something about this doesn't feel right. I'm not sure if that was wise in hindsight, mm -hmm. but it, <laughs> at the time, I just really felt strongly that I wanted to start with, like from the people. Yeah. You know, let's, let's start from a ground up grassroots type of methodology. And so that's what I did. I, I got, you know, I really loved the idea of Kickstarter. And I, I don't know about you, but I listened to this podcast, how I built this. Yeah. And they talk a lot about various <laughs> forms of funding. And I love the idea of crowdfunding. So I did that I launched a campaign on Kickstarter, I got to learn about the platform, like anything you realize, you can't just show up and expect it to be a success, you actually have to do your own work to prepare for this mm -hmm. campaign as well which includes creating your own mailing list and getting making sure all your friends and family are part of it. And even doing some kind of strategic things like seeing if you can get a Projects We Love badge and even doing some internal marketing so you can get on the Kickstarter team's radar so that they'll include your project in an email mm -hmm. to their, their list. And was it successful? Yes, it was great. We actually raised our goal within 48 hours. What? And that was really cool. I mean, wow. it was a very achievable goal, but regardless, we we ended up almost tripling our goal, which was great. Wow. So what was the moment when you knew that that you could take the leap and really pursue it full time, that it was a real thing? I don't think I ever stopped doing other things. I've always been consulting on the side. Mm. So I think, you know, you know, this is a business owner. It takes time to build traction and to build critical mass. So even now I'm still doing freelance consulting on the side. Mm. But um, it's still a project that's so important to me. And I, I think to myself, okay, we actually did a lot in a year, right? We launched, we started shipping product in the beginning of January. And I don't know about you, but it's really easy to sit there and criticize all the ways that things could have been better, which I'm very good at doing to myself. <laughs> and I thought to myself, okay, wait, how can I have launched this brand? And I, I don't even feel anything. All I can think about is all the things I need to improve that I'm not even celebrating what's happening. So. I think now I've sort of come to the place where it's taken some time and and some distance from it in a way to be able to recognize, okay, we actually did a lot in a year. We launched on Kickstarter. We, sh we produced product in the middle of a pandemic. We shipped it. We have some fantastic customer reviews where people are talking about how this shoe has really improved their lives. And mm -hmm. that is, to me, is the best thing ever. Yeah. And on top of that, we've gotten some great press. 
and you know, I was talking to somebody who had, he's like a serial entrepreneur and has launched all these companies, he's telling my story. And he said to me, he gave me really great perspective. He's like, listen, you actually have the hardest thing you ever did was to be cancer. You have everything ready to go. Like you have a you have a viable product with a with a proof of concept. Mm-hmm. You have a distribution network. You have a supply chain already set up and ready to scale. All you're missing is capital to help you f- to fuel it. So I'm like, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny how you can like you could be living something and not even see it really for what it is. What you're doing is, is it's called solopreneurship. I mean, it is just you. How do you get perspective and have mentors and, and, and advice from people like that? Yeah. I mean, it's such a work in progress. I don't think I realized how much I enjoy working with people and how much community really, really impacts me. And teams, because you are always on such vibrant teams. Yeah. And team. Yes. And I do have amazing people that I work with, but they don't live in New York and they also have other jobs. So all of us are kind of doing this on the side. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the hardest part is feeling like everything has to come from me, like all of the energy, all of the ideas. And that's actually not true that all of it has to come from me. It's just this mindset I had that it all had to come from me. Mm -hmm. So I know now too, when I go back to it full-time, full-time that I'm going to have an, I'm my, my intention is to have a team and to not try and do this by myself because that is not sustainable. I completely burned out last year yeah, because um, I was quote unquote doing it all for a minute. Yeah. But then, you know, I was like the social media person. I was literally editing <laughs> videos for our YouTube channel. I was writing content for the blog. It was just so much. And then obviously managing production and customer service and shipping and all of those things that I was like, why am I trying to do this all? This is crazy. Where do you think that comes from, Nellie? Like, what do you think you shouldn't need help and you had to do it all of your, all yourself to be worthy? Where do you think that comes from? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe there's something about, I would say, the culture we grow up in where you're supposed to have it all together and never show your, you know, never let them see you sweat kind of <laughs> idea. Yeah. Sure. Just wake up and start a company. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> And I grew up also in a family where, you know, we're an immigrant family. We're I'm one of four children. Mm-hmm. So I think I was, and I'm one of the older half. So I was used to not really asking for help because like, even if I needed help with my homework, it wasn't like my parents could really help me. So mm-hmm. I started to, I guess, develop this mindset that I, I just, if anything was going to happen, I need to just do it myself. And while that can be true and and actually has served me, in a way to get to this point, I also know it's not the mindset that's going to serve me for the next decades right. to come. So it's like, it was fine and I can be grateful for it because it pushed me to get to where I am, but it's no longer serving me. So it's time for a different way of viewing the world. Yeah. We share a little bit also about your, your business vision that every touch point you're helping somebody. I don't know about you, but sometimes with fashion, you can get a little, like I was starting to get a little like what is this all for? We're, <laughs> we're producing so much product. Does even anybody want this? Mm-hmm. And I started to get a little disenchanted. As much as I find the artistry and beauty of fashion to be really special and a true expression and almost like a, a reflection of what's happening in culture at the moment, mm-hmm. there are other parts of it that are less uh, elevated, shall we say, that are a little bit just more about making money. And that wasn't very inspiring to me. And I thought, okay, if I'm going to start a business the world doesn't need more stuff. So it better be something that's actually adding to the world and actually helping people. Mm-hmm. So 
that was my concept is like, okay, let's make product that's actually solving a real problem for people who are underserved. And then all of our messaging and a way to be able to interact with the brand in theory could be uplifting. So that's one of the things we did. We partnered with American Cancer Society for the first few months of our launch. And we actually told stories from their community. We used our marketing budget to do that. So basically we interviewed survivors, we interviewed doctors, we interviewed researchers, caregivers, and just had them tell their story because in story, even in the most specific of stories, I think we all see there's a universality of it, Mm -hmm. of the human experience. And it was a very subtle campaign because they were wearing read and shoes, mm-hmm. so they weren't talking about them, <laughs> but just living their lives and having being interviewed. And that was sort of our way of, you know, telling the story of American Cancer Society and, and the work they do mm-hmm. and hopefully providing some comfort to people. Because as you know, when you're going through hard times, sometimes just hearing someone else who's going through the exact same thing is a relief. You're, you realize, okay, I'm not alone. Yeah. So that's another thing. And then eventually when we are able to really donate our profits when we're profitable, I think that how cool will that be that we can sit there and choose charities to partner with and actually make a difference through what we're doing. Has giving always been a value in your life? I mean, did you, did you learn it from your parents or watch your parents do it? You know, uh, they are very generous and loving, awesome people. But I think the biggest turning point for me was that India trip. Really? I realized, yeah, I just realized how lucky I am and how lucky all of us in this in the United States pretty much are. You know, we have so much, there's so much abundance here. Mm-hmm. And I just had this call to be like, okay, well, the fact that I have anything at all is kind of a fluke in a way. It's like a, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not the one that is the reason why I, I live this life, right? We just were born into it in some ways. And obviously you, you do what you can with the gifts you're given and you try and maximize those. But on the other hand, there's no reason why I have this and they have that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I think that's that's what I want to do is to to basically find a way to be radically generous. And maybe that'll set an example for other people. Who knows? Maybe create it, maybe inspired other people to give back. Who knows? I mean, even to this day, actually, after India, we, a couple, me and two other friends, we actually started a nonprofit to continue to work with that population because we were so inspired by them hmm. and wanted to continue helping them. So earlier in the podcast, you mentioned a job as not being the full expression of who you are. Do you think that what you're doing now is the full expression of who you are? This is a loaded question because so many of us in fashion tend to define ourselves by what we do and by our career and our position Mm. and our role and the store we work for. (laughs) And as much as, you know, there's a part of me that thought, oh, I I graduated from all of that when I started this brand. But even still, it's, it's something I continue to work on and work through. So I know that what I do is not who I am and it's not the way I want to define myself and I don't want to define my success in life by my accomplishments or achievements. But I'm not going to lie and tell you I have that all figured out. It's still a work in progress, but I'm aware of it much more so than ever before. And I think like that, that is really what it feels like to be a grown up is to just not feel like I need to need this approval from anybody. It's like, I can I just be happy in myself? You know, can I be proud of myself? I want to hear what you wore to the prom in Hawaii. This is my favorite question. I know I love this question. I, I do too. Like a little window into everybody. 
<laughs> it's like I get to peek in their bathroom co- exactly, closet. Exactly, it is bathroom totally bathroom cabinet. So good. <laughs> what you got for me, Nelly? So <laughs> my prom dress was a black DKNY like neoprene mini dress. Whoa. <laughs> so funny. That is so Hawaii. I know. Did you it go was, swimming in it? <laughs> it's so funny. I I don't even, I never even wore a neoprene before, but I saw it, it was like on super sale at, at Macy's and I saw it, I was like, oh, this is so cool. And the neoprene was kind of shiny. So it just looked like a, you know, kind of a, like a formal fabric in a way. It was like a cute little mini apron dress with the X back. And I wore it with, oh. with black stockings and a black platform heel. How and we, cute. instead of having a corsage, I had a single calla lily. <laughs> <laughs> that was very fashion. I love that. And then what, what accessories and what about hair? Oh, oh, at the time I had really short hair because that was my, again, my senior year. I was like, I want to be different. So I had cut <laughs> my hair really short and I wore a red lip. <laughs> <laughs> And that was that was the look. It I was really it. funny. Oh, the neoprene sounds so cool. Neoprene, it feels so good on too. Oh, it was incredibly cool, but also incredibly hot. hot. <laughs> Hawaii, I bet, I bet it was hot. I was dying. At the end of the night, I was literally peeling it off my body. I was like, what? I was like, oh, no wonder people wear it in the water when it's cold. <laughs> you probably had never needed it in Hawaii. It was always warm. Well, that's one of the cooler um, prom dresses I've heard about on this program. <laughs> it's, it's our first neoprene for sure. Really funny. I love it. Oh, Nellie, I love talking to you. I really, really love talking to you and hearing your story and hearing things I'd never heard before. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you for the honor of being invited. I feel really special. What We Wore is produced by Capital and Balto Creative Media. The original song, Someone So Enchanting, was composed and performed by Britt Drazda. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. dot com.